0: Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out-of-money conversations. Join me, and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Asia Evans. Now, Asia and I don't go way back, but as soon as we met, I felt like we went way back. She's just one of those types of people that once you meet her, you're like, man, I feel safe, at ease, understood, and challenged, and provoked all in the same basket. And so I'm so excited to have her on the podcast today. Asia, welcome to the show. And can you tell the listeners a little bit about
1: yourself? Sure. Thank you, Ed. And thank you for that lovely compliment. Um, It's funny that you say that because a lot of my clients will say to me, they're like, Asia, I feel validated, dragged, and affirmed all at the same time.
0: (laughs) Okay. So my experience of you is not unique. Oh no, this is who I
1: am. This is who I am, which um, is really meaningful. And to me just says that I am showing up as myself and authentically in all the spaces that I'm in. So it's a really huge compliment for you to say that. So thank you. Yeah. Um, So I am a... Licensed mental health counselor, specializing in financial therapy. My practice is based out of New York City. I am a mother. I am a wife. I really love getting into the nitty gritty about feelings and money and just making sure that people don't feel alone because I feel like that's what drove me to this work in the first place. I was going through my own financial awakening when I first moved down to New York City and not understanding why I felt so broke and wondering if other people felt that way too. And nobody was talking about it and nobody was talking about their feelings. And I just thought to myself, I cannot be the only one struggling with this. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> I'm glad that you had that thought because there's a lot of people that get stuck thinking they are the only one struggling with this.
1: Yeah, I am, as you can imagine, a verbal processor. And when I am going through things, I'm like, oh no, let's talk about it. Who's talking about this? I need to find the information. I need to find the group of people who are having these types of conversations. And if they're not, then I need to start having them and creating a space to do so. And that's what I did with my practice and ended up finding the Financial Therapy Association, which has just blossomed my love for this work, for these conversations even more. And I cannot help myself but get more entrenched in it. So yeah, happy to be here. Happy that we have crossed paths because it's nice to have community and having these these hard conversations.
0: Let's talk about that community. It's so forefront in my mind. I'm coming off of last week being in California and talking to a group of 60 female dentists about being leaders. And we were talking about attachment theory and a trauma, probably no surprise to you, but maybe to the listeners, because that was my lens for leadership. Right. But I had one of the women share with me. She said, the circle exercise you had me do was so powerful because it reminded me of the power of community. I got the message as a woman growing up or as a little girl that it's not okay for me to be a leader. Mm. And being in this group of 60 women that are all on the journey of leadership and owning their own businesses has given me permission to be a leader. And so it's just that huge lesson in community. And we were talking just before the show started about like women, leadership, community. So let's bring it together. Help me understand what that means in your world and how you're helping create community around money and and life, right? It's all this intersections.
1: So many intersections. And this is very particular to me today because I was... Putting that conversation out there, how do I, and I'm talking about myself, like currently right now I am in it. How do I run my practice seeing my clients? I'm in the process of writing a book. I have been told many of times that I need to have a larger social media platform and presence. So looking at how do I show up consistently on social With my great messaging, of course, obviously.
0: (laughs) Of course. Everything all buttoned up, clean, nice, and on point. Yes. 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 While
1: trying to take care of myself and trying to sleep and, you know, be all the other things that I would like to be as well. A, A wife, a daughter, a sister, a friend. How do you manage all of those things when you have this fiery burning determination to do things, right? Bigger things, more things. And how do you balance it? And I'm just going to say that it is hard. Whether you got the messaging that you could be a leader or not, it's hard to figure out how to make that all work when you have certain ways that you want to show up in the world. So this is definitely a conversation that I am currently asking myself and asking other people, how do you do it? And as people say, when you become a parent. I'm a parent of two. It takes a village and it does take a village to raise children, but it also takes a village to just support a human who is trying to take on as much of um the things that we're trying to take on, right? Like we're taking on whole industries that said certain people don't have access or money means this or, you know,
0: Let's just name it. What are the industries and what people groups have been excluded? What are, who are we talking about?
1: Yeah. I mean, people who look like me, I'm a black woman who comes from upstate New York and I'm talking about money and feelings. So the idea of, you know, the traditional you're sitting down with some white male financial professional doesn't always leave room for me or my clients to feel seen in that process. And what I have found in financial therapy is that there can be a beautiful bridge to figure out how I, as a practitioner, can help my clients feel seen, but then also have these conversations with financial professionals to make sure that there's cultural sensitivity, that there is a level of financial therapy that's involved in the process that allows people to show up as who they are and feel included and feel welcomed.
0: There's... I probably failed to practice my really good active listening. I'm gonna just own it on the show, my own vulnerability here, because I got stuck on the like she's talking about white guys like me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah,
0: right. Like, and
1: I almost said like you.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, let's just own it. And so, right, but this is that funny intersectionality of all these things is like, when we're no people won't see the video of this, but they'll hear the interview, and we're seeing each other. And I'm seeing a black woman and you're seeing a white man sitting across from you. And yet it's like, we still don't fully know each other. All the, like how you see yourself from the inside out. You don't know fully how I see myself from the inside out. And it's like, I don't even see myself as a financial professional. Sometimes I still see myself as a firefighter. Right. And so it's like, and I see myself as a nice guy and I see myself as someone that wants to be helpful. And, but that meeting with like, What do we see externally is what we, the first impressions and that journey, right? And it takes relational fortitude and confidence and safety to see the person beneath the skin color and all the stories. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I would say so. And I'll I'll add, like you said, like your stories, but your identities. And there's a level of vulnerability that is just going to be present when it comes to money. So when you are opening yourself up to another person, so we're not even talking about the identities that you carry that can be seen or assumed, but we're talking about mm. what it means to then bring those identities to the space and be vulnerable to open up your money things to another person to see them as well.
0: So, wow. I mean, man, I'm I'm just blown away. This is already so rich, at least for me. And I'm sure people who are listening is, The seen identities and then the, would you say, like invisible identities?
1: Yeah, yeah. That
0: are less, you can't see by just looking at someone. And so we have this combination of all these identities. Um, And and I'm thinking about representation. And I was struck, so I was mentioned I was at this conference last week with four female dentists. And one of the speakers was speaking on diversity. And what she was talking about is the percentage of black people in dentistry, 3%. Very low. And Asia, I'm not sure if it was you or someone else that brought to my attention, like the percentage of black therapists, but it's like the same number. And so there's, there's very little representation. And this is, I think that concept that I'm working through for myself is how much representation actually matters. So it is like the visible identities in the different roles do matter, Mm -hmm. especially around money. So can you... Can you talk to that a little bit,
1: yeah. So I mean, in general, in communities of color, there is a level of trust that you're willing to give to somebody who looks like you. And I don't think it's just community colors. I think it's it's all communities, right? Sure. So, um, a little bit about me, I love Denmark, <laughs> and oh, okay. I just love the vibe of Copenhagen, I'll say, and some other smaller cities that I have been to. And I know there's a lot of conversation around how Scandinavians are some of the happiest people in the world. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I know, I have been like, well, why can't we achieve that here in America? And what's going on? <laughs> right. Yeah. Good right. Question. Yeah. So, good. one, America is massively large compared. <laughs> to some of these Scandinavian smaller... Scandinavian countries. <laughs> right, yes. Scandinavian countries. Yes, yes. But what they say is that it's easier to um, do things for the group when people look the same.
0: Uh, right, right. Yeah. So it's
1: easier for, for people to come together and say, hey, this is for the good of, you know name a community. This is for the good of the school. This is for the good of this neighborhood, for the good of the state, good of the country, if people look the same. America is extremely diverse. And that is a beautiful thing. And it, to me, is what makes us so powerful and so great. But that also means that people are going to be coming from a different place of their needs and their wants and their desires. And Mm. I think about that Larger global view when we're talking about who you're going to see. So, for as a therapist or as a financial professional. So, a lot of the clients I see are Black women. And I think it is because I am a Black woman. So, the representation of seeing, hey, that person looks like me. I do not need to describe a microaggression. Or what it means culturally in a family to be a black woman or to be the oldest um, female in the family. I don't have to potentially describe it to her because that might be her experience too. And and a lot of times, a lot of our experiences are, of course, not exactly the same. But Mm -hmm. I can understand what it means to be like, oh, I went to this certain place and I just didn't feel comfortable They don't have Mm. to say they were the one or the only before I'm already thinking, is it because you were the one and the only, was it something else? Was it like, it's part Uh, of the rundown of comfort that I would think for them, but also think for myself.
0: I think that's really powerful. And what I'm hearing you say, or what I think I'm hearing you say is because our brains are wired for deep association, deep experience. Right. And so it's like, and we, feeling known and seen is because we don't have to explain everything. Right. Right. Like in a softer form, in a, when I get with a therapist, like the conversational flow changes versus like when I'm trying to talk to my wife or my other friends that are non-therapists, there's just ideas and concepts and experiences that they can't fully relate to. And it's not an inherent problem with them. It's just, they don't have those experiences and knowledge right. to go there. Right. And so that's, I think that's what you're describing conceptually, but in a, I'm hesitant to say more significant, but I think it's true to say in a more significant way, like racial identity is such a profound experience of, of our lived experience and what that means and, that, and the extra empathy and journey that it takes for a white male to understand what a black female's experience has been is a long journey.
1: Right, and and may require a level of explanation sometimes and what that looks like and does the other person sitting at the other side in the other chair on the couch or behind the desk, are they ready to hear the explanation and does the other person want to give the explanation?
0: So this is something that I've heard and felt like too is that the journey of always having to explain to the majority group what the minority group is experiencing and Mm -hmm. the fatigue that comes along with that.
1: Right. And it also like, let's be honest, that takes time. So if you're just Just practically, right. right. Just practically that takes time. If you were like, Hey, I set aside these 45 to 55 minutes for my session. I don't want to waste five minutes explaining to you like, Why my aunt is putting the ham in this one (laughs) pot because that's the (laughs) ham pot, right? Or what mac and cheese recipe is the best mac and cheese? Or why you don't use these kind of potatoes in the potato salad? Like, I I don't want to explain that. Like, I want to talk about the things.
0: I want to talk about all the other things. Yeah. So... As this pertains to people's journey with money, how do we build that bridge? Like, what's the journey that the community of people that you're working with are on with money? What are you seeing? What are you helping them through?
1: Yeah, so a lot of my clients are, so I see, like I said, a lot of black women, a lot of people of color, but a lot of them are first generation wealth builders. So they are some of the first people in their family to be making six figures or making high into the six figures and navigating what that means for them. How do they become a steward of their wealth in a way that feels good to them, in a way that um, prepares them for their future family, their current family, as well as past generations too. So, and I think many people have used like the sandwich generation. You're the Mm -hmm. generation in the middle, you're thinking about your kids and potentially Preparing for their college education or their future financially while still paying off your own potential student loan debt, while thinking about, hey, we might need to have my mother live with us, or how do we prepare for care for our elders and our family? So it's just a lot of my clients are trying to figure out what to do and what's the right thing to do, and may not have had a lot of financial education or emotional space to just be like, hey, I feel really shameful right now. I feel really guilty or I feel like I should know what I'm doing with my money or I should be able to help out my family in this way or boundaries to say no to their families in certain ways. So there's a lot of navigating what it means to be creating wealth and creating generational wealth as well.
0: So one of the things that stands out what makes this type of work so challenging and rewarding is that it's not the laws of physics that we're working with. We're working with the rules of cultural competency, really. Right. Right. And like uh, what's the family expect, what's my culture's expectation of me caring for my family and the multi-generational process. And there's the collective U S view, but then there's some micro cultural experiences that can be determined by race and ethnicity, by religion, um, I think those are the two big ones I think of first off, right, that are driving what's right. But what that's what I love hearing is people want to do the right thing, but they get lost in the quagmire of what is the right thing to do when there's not clear direction.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: How do you walk people through that? How do you help them start to sort through that process?
1: So I think recognizing what is, there's a difference between what's expected and what is Right. <laughs>
0: Okay, yeah. How do you differentiate those?
1: And how does that person differentiate it, right? So for me, I might feel one way, but my brother might feel a different way. Even though we're coming from the same family, we were raised in the same household, there are nuances to what might feel right for me versus him. And that then is so individual for my clients, for the people that they surround themselves with. And how do you deal with the potential discrepancy between what's expected? And I joke all the time, and I tell my mom, too, when I started making a certain amount of money, my mom's like, oh, here's a bill, and just, like, gave it to me. She's like, yeah, you, I'm not paying my cell phone bill anymore. You are. Oh. And that was not, it, that is not culturally unexpected at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some of my white counterparts, people are like, wait, what? I was like, they're like, well, my parents are still paying myself. I'm like, yeah, no, Is I'm that, actually the opposite.
0: <laughs> so was that something that was known for you or it just wasn't surprised? It wasn't like you're going through a graduate degree to become a therapist. You then start making good money and you tell mom like, yeah, I'm, I actually need to signal to my mom that I'm making this much money so that she knows she can give me the, the bill.
1: Oh yeah, no, no, that was not that was not why we were having that conversation. It was kind of like, yes, I got this job. I've got a raise too. This is fantastic. I'm really excited. But I do think like throughout my life, it wasn't shocking for me to hear her say that. And it wasn't, I wasn't upset, I wasn't mad at her. There was almost a pride attached to it. Like, oh, I can do this. This is great. I can. And navigating the cultural nuances of the expectation of figuring out what's right for you of the generational differences as well. And right. that looks really different too. So for me, no, my my money story involves like the idea and the, the expectation that there would be some way that I might be like giving back or taking care of someone in some capacity like my mom can afford her own telephone bill it's not that she can it was just that she's like mm, you're doing well here you do it
0: <laughs> so and it's right which i think is an interesting piece it's not even necessarily needs based
1: oh yeah yeah right? it's not even it's, yes
0: maybe it's more symbolic or representational than it is like i don't have the 150 dollars to pay my phone bill asia i need you to pay it
1: hmm right uh, and and for some people, it is need-based. Like, I am yeah. happy to say, like, this is a privilege that I have had growing up in childhood through now. Like, that is a privileged stance for me to be able to take. But for some people, it is a need-based. For some people, it is like I'm helping out the family. Um Yeah, but for me, it was just my mom's like, okay, yeah, you you're making enough. So here's that bill.
0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, Please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. So then how do you have those conversations with your husband?
1: I mean, he had to accept (laughs) that this this is kind of the way that it is, right? Like he had to learn and figure out that this is how my family operates the same way that I had to learn and figure out how his family operates. And that's different for everybody, no matter what culture, cultural background, or ethnic background, or racial background you're coming from, figuring out how to navigate those relationships and what the dynamic, the existing dynamics were before you came into the marriage. Oh, Yeah. Right. So, Uh, and we all can (laughs) understand what that means for each other. Like, oh, no, we don't do that. Oh, we do do this. So,
0: right. There's all kinds of micro nuances in every family of the do's and don'ts that are seldom stated, but certainly felt when you come up against them.
1: (laughs) Right. 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 For anybody's family, and you know, when you're entering into somebody else's family, emerging families together
0: especially merging families together, right? And the significance of meaning. And that's, I think that to me is part of why money and families becomes such a lightning rod, right? Is it's, it's so personal. It's so nuanced and it's, it, I'm not recapturing the words you use exactly, but the the story, I, uh, the way I'm rephrasing it is the, um, the story the family's already living in,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Like when you meet that person, that person is already playing a role in that family and in that family's story, yeah. And the same is true for you. You are playing a role in your family and in your family's story. And then you—it's like putting a a drama and a comedy together, and then trying to get them to marry and get the storylines to work together, and it just doesn't <laughs> go so well.
1: Right, and there might be some awkward moments in our dramedy now. In our <laughs> dramedy, right,
0: to... right, right, right.
1: <laughs> and we're trying to figure it out while. The couple itself is still trying to make sure that their foundation in love and in respect is still there and intact while the other person is navigating how to enter into the family, how to, like, hopefully, seamlessly, like, fold into the dynamics that are happening. And what role does a new person play, too?
0: So, you know, as a therapist and when you have the chance to work with couples, what are some of those exercises or things that you like to do with couples around money and integrating more together. And, you know, my favorite word is financial intimacy. I I don't know what word do you like to use, but.
1: Yeah, I, I use the same words. I use the same thing with financial intimacy and getting financially naked. Oh Um, yeah. I I was hoping that 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 would come out. Yeah. Uh Yeah. (laughs) And just being, being honest with each other. So The way I end up working with couples, first and foremost, is just about communication. I think we do not give enough credit to how powerful communication is and really setting a foundation of being as honest and as transparent in our communication as possible. And when we're uncomfortable, what's coming up that is making a barrier in the ability to be more communicative. So once we've laid that foundation, then it's like, all right, what do we need to talk about with the finances? What is what is part A of the couple feeling? What is part B of the couple feeling? And what, what needs to be kind of like attacked, if you will, in terms of crisis? Okay. Is there a crisis? And how do we both come to the same page about what we want to do? What do each of you need is also a big one too. Like, what do you need to feel okay and safe? That
0: last piece is important, but I want to go back one step. Uh, Is it a crisis? So, when you help couples really start working through things, how often is it actually a crisis or has it just become a crisis? I think it's, does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, a lot of times when I've worked with couples, they are not in crisis. Yeah. Which I, Which is, it's nice because it means for me as a therapist, doing that work is nice because it means that I'm able to help them continue to lay a stronger foundation so that when there is a crisis, because, you know, life is always going to throw things at you, that they're more prepared to handle it because we've had some of those conversations, they've built a strong foundation. So I've been in positions that as a therapist, as a couple's therapist, that I, the couple isn't in in a crisis in that moment.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, that's right, which is just refreshing to hear couples come into the counseling and, and not being in a major crisis. Like, and I think that's, you know, couples, if they can get to couples therapy and do things even proactively, even if there's nothing wrong, like go see a couple service, they'll ask you all kinds of questions that you just haven't thought to ask each other. Yes. And exactly. they'll, they'll create uh, what I, I would call mini crises where it's just like it, <laughs> it raises something that you didn't know you even needed to address, but they're also creating that and this is what I think you're saying at the end is that safety to work through that space, right? Because that's when you go through getting to know yourself or your partner more fully, that's where the intimacy comes into play.
1: Exactly. And, and you feel comfortable knowing that you, you both are there because you love each other and you want this to work and you want a solid foundation. A lot of the couples that I see are usually preparing um, to get married or are like, I recently had a couple who got engaged while we were in, oh yeah, like in, therapy. Not in the session directly, but like right. we're doing this work. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Oh, I'm just having fun with thinking about like the guy getting down on one knee in the therapy session and proposing. Like that would be so funny, but
1: right. I, I mean, I can't imagine. But we did. We yeah. did therapy right before they got engaged. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I was, it was a big day. And I was like, okay, well, I won't go too hard on you two just so that you're in a good space before you go to, like, celebrate. And they were amazing. And I was thrilled to see that they were getting married because it was shocking. And I just didn't know. And, yeah, and yeah, it, it, it's just, like, really amazing to be able to witness that as a therapist, knowing that you are helping and watching people but couples as well get stronger together
0: well and i think that right that's part of like when as a couples therapist i mean perhaps they were wanting to get engaged but there was hesitancy to getting engaged and Mm -hmm. as a couples therapist when you start to drain off the relational anxiety it creates freedom for them to be confident to take that next relational step right right but it's like yep there's just there's concerns that people have about being in intimate relationships and Let's just be honest. I mean, the percentage of people that have come from families where loving, healthy relationships were not present or modeled, it's no wonder we struggle with intimate relationships.
1: Yes. Yes. And the intimacy of being loved, too.
0: Ooh. So say more about that. And then I want to pick up on something that I experienced recently that just kind of blew my
1: mind. Yeah. So it's very intimate to be loved and Mm. to allow somebody else to to love you, to love you out loud, fully. So whether that's with words or affection, for some people, depending upon their family dynamics, that can be uncomfortable. That can feel um, unsettling, even though you love that person, even though you know they love you, being mushy and holding their hand and hugging them and kissing them and rubbing their arm or, you know, showering them with, I'm so happy and I love you so much. Like, some of those sentiments can be difficult for people to just hear and bear witness to.
0: And experience for themselves.
1: Right. Right.
0: That's so powerful. And it's like, it's something rewarding in hearing you describe it. So even though I know it in my intellectual head, like you describing, I'm feeling it in my body and that, that feeling, that longing, like, as you're just going, it's like, Oh yeah. And it, it even evoked that like longing, like, yeah, and my wife and I's own journey. Like, yes, I I would like even more like touch and that like and and I yes. know it's a journey, right? And we're on our journey. And that's I mean, I'm in this work because I want to have a great, vibrant marriage, and it's a process. Right. Um, but you you talk about being loved as an intimate experience, and so this I'm just using this conference because it's just so fresh in my head from last week, and there's so many cool things. But one of the speakers said something really interesting when she started it out, and she said, "I want you to think about." what are you grateful for? Who do you love? Who loves you? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And that's the one that sent chills down my spine. Mm -hmm. And then what are you, what's your intention for today? Right. And so I don't mean to be glib about intention or gratitude or who do you love, but it seems to me, and this may be some of my own bias, but I think a lot of people are easier, probably faster to say who they love than who loves them.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: So this question or what you're bringing forward is so very powerful. And I've taken those four questions and daily been using them. And I know my own, I look through the lens of attachment theory. So I'm anxiously attached. So I'm worried. I'm always thinking and ruminating about how to love my wife. Well, like that in my story, that's the story of my head is like, I'm always thinking about her and how to make her feel loved yeah but what I forget in that anxious attachment is that she actually loves me in return Mm -hmm. I'm and I lose sight of that and it makes her let's be honest batshit crazy because she's like I love you I tell you that I love you and I try to but it's like my own brain's ability to reflect on that and so I thought that question was so powerful and it just picks up on but that experience of the paradox of I want to be loved, but then once you love, you try to love me, I, I psychologically or physically just yes. withdraw, I'll pull away.
1: Yes. But I want it. And I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to, and a lot of times, and not that this is your experience, but I want you to know that I love you so that you also love me. Mm. Right. But that part can get really deep underneath there. And that's why. I said the intimacy of being loved because sometimes it's so deep. You're like, Ooh, no, I feel uncomfortable, but I love you. (laughs) Like it, it's a very nuanced, complex, you know, dynamic that is playing out sometimes without us even knowing about it. And I think that's why it can be hard to just sit in the, I love you. I just want to hold you and be next to you and kiss your cheeks and,
0: you know, Mm -hmm. snuggle up. (laughs) there's, you know, it's, it's funny because the words that were coming to mind, there's nothing performative in that, right? There's an authenticity in what I hear you describing, right? And so when we kind of are meshing between these worlds of, of love and then money, money often doesn't have that non-performative element of, I just want to be with you around the money and comfortable and at ease. Mm -hmm. It's like, what are you doing? What am I doing for you? How much are we measuring? How much growth? And it's, and there's a place for that, that way of relating to money, but it's underneath, I think it's the relational aspect of just being with each other and talking about money and feeling safe and secure that's so hard for so many couples. And it's like, yeah, you know, I've come to think that a major part of doing money work with couples is helping them feel loved by each other, truly feeling loved by each other. And then like once that foundation is in place, then the money work gets much easier. But if we try to do the money work before you feel relationally secure, we're just going to end up spinning our wheels.
1: Right. It's just a band aid for what you really need to get to, Mm -hmm. which is like you said, the deeper root of making sure that both parties feel loved and feel strong in that foundation so that we can start talking about your money stuff. Knowing that it's coming from a place of love and genuine care for the other person.
0: So, I'm going to take this that next step deeper. How do you think, in particular, childhood trauma and the various expressions of it map onto people's experiences with money?
1: I'm like, it, like skin. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <laughs> like skin. Yeah. Like skin. It's there like skin. It. <sighs> It's just so formative, I think is the the best way that I can describe mm. it, um, the word I'm, I'm looking for it. And yes, important, yes, but formative, I think you don't always realize how it shapes you. And even if you recognize, hey, this is my financial trauma, this is a childhood trauma, this was traumatic for me, the things that then happen in your life later can impact how you view that same exact trauma that you had already been working through years before, days before, months ago. And I think it continues to shape and shift and have a formative view on how you see the world and how you see money and how you see yourself in both of those things.
0: So one of those themes, right, that comes with money so often is trust, And if you've experienced trauma in your childhood of various different types, often there's some violation of trust. So like that's in my mind, one of those big map overs is like, if I've learned to mistrust myself or mistrust others from whatever the source of childhood trauma, how is that then mapping that generalized mistrust map onto my experience of being able to trust or not trust in the money dance,
1: yeah, and and how do I make peace with it
0: mm, mm-hmm.
1: right. or heal from it,
0: right? To then
1: live the way that I may want to live,
0: right? So, what's the restorative process of being able to trust again, right? How do I rebuild my ability to trust myself or trust others,
1: right? And and then to add, like what we were just talking about, how do I rebuild that trust? That could be when it's just you, right? So you're trying to rebuild that trust when it's, when you're not married or when you're not partnered with somebody and you're trying to rebuild that trust for yourself, but then say you decide to partner with someone. Now we're in a whole different ballgame because it's not just you,
0: okay, right? right? Now we're, right.
1: we're bringing that other person's stuff <laughs> and life
0: yes. into
1: it. So the depths of what we're talking about, the depths of complexity, sometimes feel infinite.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it just gets so, there's so many layers. And so my reaction to that is kind of to try to bring it back into some tangibility. Mm -hmm. But like what was coming to my mind is it's like dropping that food dye in water, right? It just, it colors the whole glass. It doesn't just stay in one part. Yes. And so it gets, you know, kind of in a more practical, it gets into our physiology, into our yeah. cellular structure, as well as our thought and existential meaning making and everything in between. 100%. But then also what I was thinking about is that developmental lens that you're describing. Is like, even if you're working through your trauma and your money as a single person, you get to a, a relative degree of resolve and functioning. Soon as you enter in that intimate partnership, you have to kind of rework through it all again with this person, cool. and then and then what I was what you didn't say, but I'm sure you're there is then what happens when you bring kids into the the mix, and now that money trauma and other traumas are all back up on the table for reprocessing again, and I yes. and I don't know this as firsthand experience because I'm only in the like child raising phase like you. But, what I imagine will be interesting is when I become a grandparent.
1: Mm. oh wow. And I, I haven't even thought about that,
0: yeah, right. Like so just you know, you can put the mental brakes on if you need to, and I'll just say like in my own thoughts, I don't spend a lot of time ruminating or thinking about that. But as we're thinking about this developmental, like I think people will get frustrated, like, why am I dealing with this again? Why am I dealing with these feelings about? my mom or my dad or my uncle or whoever it was that left some pain in your life. But because we have – we un- unfortunately and fortunately, I think, have to rework through stuff as we go through the different seasons of life. And hopefully, yes. as we learn to work with it, we move through it a little more gracefully in each developmental stage. But it's still a reckoning.
1: Yes. And it's also your lens is different. Mm. Right? So like your lens of, hey, I'm working through my financial traumas and the life that I've lived and my experiences as a single person is different than the lens you would be taking if you were then partnered or married and then different than what you would take if and when you choose to become a parent type of thing. And one example that I have been thinking a lot about is my own money story. And I just remember when I was younger and in middle school and teenage, like high school, you know, like most teenage kids dealing with self-esteem stuff and not feeling cool enough or wanting to feel cooler. Oh, yeah. And to me, right, like I really attached it to money. I felt like it was if I had four pairs of the new hottest sneakers, then I would feel cool. Uh If I was wearing this, I would feel Oh, my God. Better my self-esteem. And what I've recognized now with my kids, and my kids are very young, is I'm already preemptively concerned about what the fashion trends will be and how I will navigate making sure that they're quote unquote cool enough, but not (laughs)
0: like
1: getting all of the things just because they want it. And that has nothing to do with my kids. My kids are three and a half and one and a half that has everything to do with my own money story. And how do I, how do I give respect to my money story and hold myself in that healing, but then also not put that on my kids as well?
0: You know, I'm really so glad that you shared that because that's where my mind was kind of going. I have a 12 year old son, so he's very much in that stage where like, material objects give me status, the right Mm -hmm. shoes give me status in my peer group. And I I think as far as I can tell, I want to, especially in a consumer-based society, like normalize that as not problematic, not bad. And I think what I was thinking about is, right, because my own experience is like shoes, very specifically, and shoes are a common place for a lot of folks to have some hang up. Because Mm -hmm. I, I think what's happening so oftentimes is, developmentally, we're starting to learn, we're putting so many pieces together as a kid, right? Right. We're learning how numbers work. We're learning that numbers are connected with money, that money has certain limits to it. Our parents are setting the external authority or not, right? Or, Or somewhere. And how they do that relationally determines some of what that experience of buying those shoes like and being able to have them or not have them, what they say or how they say it. Can minimize or over exaggerate, and so we're. This is not to shame parents about what they've done, because I think a lot of parents really are, in whatever way they approach it, trying to do the best they can and doing it the right way from their Mm -hmm. lens. And so there's this big reckoning I think as we start to become more open and curious about like how do we parent our kids around money experiences and being a, a global citizen, a consuming citizen. How do we do that responsibly? How do we think about that and uh, I don't have all the answers. I'm in the journey, and I know 20 years from now, I'll look back and be like, yeah, I thought I understood some of this. And then my son's going to come to me and be like, Dad, you, like, really hurt me in this scenario. And
1: Yes, remember when you wouldn't get me those sneakers. I feel hurt by this.
0: I mean, literally, this is what happened two weeks ago. Is We went to the mall. He wanted to get new sneakers. I was like, okay, we'll go to Foot Locker. He's sorting through them, and I'm kind of like – I'm over that phase of my life. I don't care what shoes I wear. But he does. And I can remember. So, I'm trying to honor that. But he's going through these different shoes. And I just... And I don't know where this came from. It came from within me. But I was like, so why are you buying these shoes? What's motivating it? And I said, are you buying it for status, style, or function? Mm. I don't... Maybe I read that somewhere. I'd love to give credit if that's somebody else's thing. But like, whatever. I also was like wanting to make sure he had space to make his own decision that there was really no judgment on the motivation. Like I'm neutral. If you want it for status. Okay. Just know that that's why you're buying it. If you want it for your own style or some combination, that's fine. Well, he ended up going for the functional shoe. Mm. My hunch is partly that was motivated by the fact that of, he knows dad's values and he never conveyed that. And that while I was trying to be neutral, I actually kind of wanted him to go for the status shoes because there were Jordans with baby blue, Carolina blue and Jordan. I'm, but you know, I like, so it's just this whole thing. Like, I'm just, I'm letting people into my internal thought world because like these yeah. are the things and we can't stop from having these formative experience with our kids fully. Right. Like we, we are impacting our kids and our kids know us too. And they're accommodating to some accommodating and rebelling against. Yeah. Especially in middle school and beyond some of that. So anyhow, thank you for letting me.
1: I mean, I love that though. I I think that's a beautiful way to approach it because then you're also allowing your child to decide like, Oh, this is why I'm doing this. And do they like that? Right. I'm doing this for my style and I'm totally okay with that. Or I am doing this for status yeah. and I like it, or I don't like that I'm doing this for status. So I may make a different decision or functionality. Right. So I'm going to keep that little nugget. Thank you.
0: Well, and what's interesting is two days later he came back and he said, you know, I really think I actually wanted to get this more status focused shoes. And I said, okay, I hear you. And I understand that. And when you're ready to go buy shoes again, then just go with that in mind. Yeah. So this has been such an incredible conversation. I love the work that you're doing. And just more importantly, I love the person that you are. Your character shines through so brightly. Um, If people wanted to connect with you and the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to find you?
1: Sure, so you can follow me on Instagram, at Asia E Therapy, I'm also newly on TikTok.
0: <laughs> hey, dancing moves, okay?
1: Right. <laughs> it's a lot of it's a lot of me talking, <laughs> yeah. so
0: okay. maybe
1: less dancing than some, but I still think a worthy adventure. <laughs> so, and that's also with Asia E Therapy as well, or my website asiaevanscounseling.com. Wonderful,
0: Asia. Thank you so much for the great work you're doing and the support you're providing for people.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ed.
0: I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed.